Today's episode is sponsored by Tego. For most of us, indemnity insurance is one of our biggest costs of practice. But when was the last time you took a look at the coverage and compared your premium with others? Many of us are still with the same insurer we joined in med school or intern year. Thousands of doctors have made the switch to Tego and benefited from their personalised approach to pricing. You will also get an extra two months free in your first year. If you are new to private practice, you might even qualify for four years of discounted premiums. Tigo offers competitive premiums, quality cover and 24-7 support backed by top Medico legal advisors. Get a free quote and discover why thousands of doctors are insured by Tigo by visiting tigo.com.au. Hi everyone. On today's episode, we have some colourful language. So if you don't want your kids to hear those words, consider listening through some headphones. Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the part two anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr. Kate McCrossan. And I'm Dr. Kate Steele. And today's episode is We Are The Champions, where we'll discuss part two exam preparation with Cecil Gray prize winner, Dr. Anna Peach. As always, in this podcast, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. Dr. Anna Peach is a consultant anaesthetist working at the Sunshine Coast. She has a 0.75 role in public at SCU, where she is the clinical lead for the pre-anesthesia evaluation unit and is also the lead for the fellowship exam teaching. She also works privately with a special interest in spinal surgery, orthopaedics and general surgery. Outside of work, she enjoys life at the beach with her family. Anna, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Kate. I'm really hoping that um, being on this podcast gives me lots of street cred with my part two candidates at SCU. (laughs) (laughs) We can only hope. (laughs) So look, as a disclaimer to today's episode, we know that not everyone is aiming to win a prize in the exam and also that everyone's exam preparation is different in individual. But we think there's always something we can learn from everyone's story and who better to tell their story than a Cecil Gray prize winner. Absolutely. So, Anna, I've been looking forward to this interview for a while because I'm itching to know personally about your exam preparation. So, look, let's start from the beginning. How did you decide when you were going to sit the final exam? That's a good question, Anna. Interestingly, I was listening to a um, primary podcast this week from the ASA and they talked a lot about this and um, I don't think there's an answer that can cover this for everyone I think it really depends on sort of where you're at and where it sits with you. And for me, I actually had a lot of stuff happening in my advanced training. So I'd had a second maternity leave. My dad actually passed away. I had a child who was starting prep. And so actually the decision for me was entirely about where it sat in my private life and how it was going to sit with where I was working. And I managed to kind of find a spot where I could work 0.75, study for a day, and it kind of would fit with getting it done before my child started prep. But It meant that I did it with absolutely the most minimal experience you could have as an advanced trainee. Mm. And I know that um, a lot of places don't recommend you do it. And let's just say it wasn't probably the easiest decision for me. Fair Mm. enough. And that's the interesting thing, isn't it? It's like, it's not just about what's going on in your career. It's also about trying to time everything else. So, you know, given, particularly given, as you pointed out, that you were early in your advanced training, how did you approach the task of planning your study? Did you have everything planned in advance uh, before you even, you know, like got your first journal article off the internet or how did you go about it? 
Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? And I like I knew from the primary that I reckon you take a good few months of lead-in where you're kind of fluffing around and not doing anything very useful. And I knew that. Mm. So I actually, um, while I was on maternity leave and not really working, and before I even was really starting to study, I actually snuck into my friend's study group. So they were all sitting um, ahead of me. And so just listening to them talk and seeing kind of what they were doing, And talking to lots of people who had just sat or were thinking about sitting and really hearing about what kind of how they were approaching it, what references they were using, you know, what journal Mm. articles and what kind of their strategy was. And I think the problem with that is someone will tell you, you have to do this and you can't do that. So make sure that you get a bit of a a few different people that you speak to as well. And I think that pre-contemplation phase, this is what I tell people at work and what I did is just think about a case at work and think about something that's really you know, mundane and everyday, like hypertension or COPD or diabetes. And then write a one-liner that's, you know, an SAQ, say, about that topic. And you can do one of those a week kind of leading in. The other thing I did was engage in teaching at work, which was actually hard because I wasn't sort of at a phase. They weren't allowing me to actually go into the fellowship teaching because they really didn't want me to sit that early. (laughs) But just preparing for teaching, you know, each time and seeing what everyone around you is doing because often there were people in that teaching who were really sitting. So I think just a slow lead in because I think when you hit it hard, you do need to hit it hard and it takes a bit of time to do that. Yeah. Mm. Um, And to know what you're going to do. Yeah. I I think it's a great suggestion, particularly about, you know, picking the case at work and just having a think, you know, and just it's not really, really super active study, but it's just starting to put yourself in that mindset. Does your pre-contemplation also involve a trip to office works? Because I found that my own preparation (laughs) usually involves, and these days it's probably Smiggle or something. I don't know what the kids are into, but. (laughs) Yes. Because I reckon when you buy the dividers for your folders, that's like a month's mm. worth of study. So then you can tap out for another month. Exactly, definitely. exactly. <laughs> it depends. And, but you're right. I reckon the key point to that, though, is you have to have the strategy and know how you're mm. going to structure and do your study. And I really changed from primary to final. So primary, I um, typed lots and lots of notes. For the final, I literally had a book and a pacer and I hand wrote out one little summary mm. for everything I did. So, yeah, it was really different. Mm. Fair enough, fair enough. Now, Anna, how did your study group come together? It was pretty dynamic, actually. So as I said, most of the people I did the primary with um, didn't take maternity leave, so they all sat ahead of me. Um, One of the girls actually ended up having a small baby just as we started studying, and so um, she and I studied together with her six-week-old newborn for most of our study group. And then as we went along, we actually picked up a few extra people um, and not that we were being exclusive, but it did end up being a mum's only study group. And we, I picked up people across North Brisbane, South Brisbane and Gold Coast. So, Oh, wow, um, that's impressive. Yeah, it was pretty dynamic though, sort of changing a bit. Yeah, it's, yeah, you're, it's just funny what you describe because uh, I had the opposite. I, it was me and three childless men and none of us had kids and we drank beer occasionally in our study group and <laughs> seemed to work because everyone got through so <laughs> there's no time for that no time <laughs> different <laughs> stages of life <laughs> so how did your study group um work together to prepare for the exam it's it's a really tricky one and I think there's a lot of risk in that in relying really heavily on a study group because I know for me my time was absolutely precious. You know, every minute that I had allocated study had to be used. I think there's an element of accountability. So I think having a group of people you meet up with every week who, you know, you have to show up and you have to have done something and even just being able to share in the sadness of all studying together and not doing anything socially. 
And look, this doesn't work for everyone, but we had a super detailed schedule. So down to mm. we'd worked out what we needed to cover, the weeks we were going to cover it, where our practice papers would fit, where all of the college documents would fit. So it was all planned out. And then at the on the weekend, so usually on a Sunday night, we'd work out what the high value items were for that topic. So we had a set of notes um, and we would flick through those and have a bit of a look and make a list of all the things that we thought were important. And I know that other people can't really study for you, so we would attempt to get through all of those, but we would start at a different end each so that if either of us got busy, then someone hopefully had covered the topics. Mm. When we got together, yeah, we would then basically anaesthetic fibre. So we would learn it to the point that you have to be able to present it. So, you know, foreign body and a child, what are you worried about on history? What are you worried about on exam? And we would kind of vibrate each other back and forth, really. Yeah, I mean, that Mm. sounds fantastic. It's very, yeah, I think having a plan maybe to different levels of detail, but I think having a plan is almost essential. I mean, otherwise you're just sort of flailing around and, you know, close your eyes and put your, put your finger on an essay yeah. and go for it. Well, you say that, but one of the smartest people I know who won the Renton and got a merit for the final, she lived on a boat and she had the curriculum on her walls and post-it oh notes and she'd just um, <laughs> read stuff and highlight it. And, wow. Yeah, and it, yeah so oh that's goodness. why I say it's not everyone. I, do, yeah. I love a plan, an intense plan, but it's not everyone's, you know, not everyone's cup of tea. That's fair enough. And I think regardless of your approach, it does, there's so much to cover that you do have to study smart. Like you have to be sensible and you do have to have a targeted approach no matter how you structure it, but you have to be sensible to a degree. You can't cover everything. You need to cover the big ticket stuff. So, yeah, mm. I like that. That's really cool. Now, I'm curious, were there any problems that you had to manage in your study group? Oh, I think probably general dishevelment. I think, um, (laughs) I mean, I had two kids by this point. The other girl in my study group had a newborn. Um, The other people we collected along the way all had, you know, busy lives. I think everyone has busy lives. And then I think as well, you guys know, you know, with your on-call requirements, weekends, even just finding the time to really get Mm. together was really tricky. Um, And I guess on that note, having, I think, less people in a study group is probably a good idea, but uh, there weren't any problems as in, you know, difficulties with studying, but just general life dishevelment was a real issue for us. Yeah, of course. I can't even imagine for trainees at the moment as well with COVID on top of that, it must Mm. just be a whole another level of dishevelment. I mean, the upshot, everyone's actually learned how to use Zoom and Teams, which has been, you know, in the medical. That's true. Yeah, Yeah, we had girls driving, you know, Gold Coast Pier, like literally meeting all over Brisbane and southeast Queensland for study. Yeah, I was thinking that. Imagine if we had Zoom, life-changing. So, look, how did you structure your own personal study and what did you do that you think worked well? I was talking to someone just this week about a different type of fellowship exam. But I think the most important thing for this exam, because you can be really, really, really smart and you can know a lot about anaesthetics and you can fail this exam. So know exactly what you're studying for. So I say in my exam prep talk, you've got to know the enemy. So you've got to go to the ENSCA <laughs> website. You've got to read it. You've got to know where the points are. You've got to know what they're looking for in each of the sections and then you train for it. So there's no point reading endless, endless textbooks and things on, you know, topics where you learn absolute depth when really you only need to know to the level of a short answer question. So, and then I guess that kind of leads into the fact that each part of the exam is testing something different. So you can't sort of learn one-page summaries for your SAQs and expect that to transfer over to your MCQ. So for each part, you actually need to study differently. So for me, short answer questions were about I guess, the BJA articles and kind of learning things to that level where I guess, you know, you could create a one-page summary. 
and mm. really getting quite deep in depth about the actual stems that are on those SAQs. Because I always say to my trainees, there's no dead words. There's not a single word in that SAQ that they haven't chosen for a reason. So mm. really looking at what they're asking and all of the detail of that. And what I say in my um, fellowship um, study shoots is who gives a shit? And what that mm. means is not only what are they asking, so what does that word at the beginning mean, but it also means why are they asking it? Like is this a emergency crisis or is this, you know, are they asking it because they really want to explore kind of medical vibe or medical history? So I always say that, read the SAQ and think who gives a shit in your head because it's about what are they asking and why are they asking it? And the smart part with SAQs is about working backwards, not forwards. And what that means is look at the SAQ and kind of the level that you need, then read around it. Don't go and read 17 books and then try and jam that into mm. an SAQ. Mm. So it's that kind mm, of backwards reading. Yeah. For, yeah MCQs, for MCQs, I think you have to, um, they, they exist. So I counted in my exam. There were only 39 I hadn't seen before. So they oh, are. Wow, that's there. amazing. Yeah, yeah, they're out there and they exist. So, um, and, and the thing I learned from the primary was that if the answers look a bit weird, don't worry about the answer. Someone's actually probably remembered it incorrectly. Mm. With your medical fiber, the format of that's really changed. And I know people who are sitting soon will know about that. Um, I don't think the examination of patients is going to come back in anytime soon. So I think the value here is really in just practicing, you know, with other people in your study group or at work around all of the different conditions and going through your kind of history examination um, and then talking through different questions. And then I think the anaesthetic vibe is different. And I know my study group, we took on a basically anaesthetic vibering from the absolute get-go. But you can know a lot about anaesthetics and actually not be very good at an anaesthetic viber. So there <laughs> is this kind of... Um, I feel like it's a little bit of an act. It's like you get on stage and you have to go through this kind of mm. talking. And and I think the the secret there, um, I guess it, it really comes down to practising for the anaesthetic fibre and finding a way to be um, yourself as well. I talk yeah. clearly, you're working out really quickly. <laughs> and I think people, people, some people talk really slowly but then feel really pressured because they have to talk really quickly in fibres. Mm. It actually doesn't work to be someone that you're not. So I think really practising being um, unique to yourself as well. I think that's some um, fantastic like advice. So I think knowing each of the components of the exam and then structuring what you're going to learn and how you're going to learn it for each component is really important. For me, what I actually did was say I had a week where say I was doing paediatrics or a specific topic. I would then, as I said, I would make a list of what I thought were the important things to cover. And then I would just break it down into really small goals. So, you know, I would usually use BJA articles and nothing much more depth than that. And if as if it was a really um, a topic that I probably didn't have enough time to cover, I might even use some of the notes that are around. Mm. But I would really focus on my ability to, um, to learn it under headings. So being able to, say, summarise it down into, you know, the few key points and then actually practising recreating those. So using a piece of paper or a whiteboard to actually create those points. Remembering as well um, with each of those that breadth and depth are different things. And this is another thing that I try and teach is breadth is about your ability to absolutely span the topic. So pre-op assessment, people might go, oh, do a history exam investigations. But for a kind of a breadth answer, you would then talk about, um, you know, consent, communication, you know, other teams that you might speak to, mm. pre-operative planning, like cell salvage. And those breadth answers, I think, make you sound like you actually know what you're talking about. And that's the goal, really, isn't it? 
The other thing, so for me um, with time, so every minute I had obviously was allocated to either study or to being with my family. So when I was at work, it was on, you know, I was trying to use absolutely every resource that I could. So if I was in a TERP with a surgeon, I would discuss with them about, you know, different surgical techniques and why they would choose different things. If I had an anaesthetic nurse in a long case, I'd get them to go and get the anaphylaxis box or the MH trolley and I'd get them to talk through how they actually prepare the machine. Mm-hmm. Um, I would, unfortunately, for a lot of my bosses, um, create lists in my phone of questions that I need answered and I'd have them via topic. So if I was working with someone who worked at the Peds Hospital, I would come to work with a list of things that I want to talk about from a Peds perspective or intensive care. I'm sure people loved having me as a trainee on their lists. I don't know. I you like know what? prepared it would have forced them to revise. So I'm sure they would have loved that. <laughs> I, well, I never thinking, warned them, obviously. <laughs> I was just thinking that I'd be like, oh my goodness, okay, I'll have to uh, do some reading in my break and come back. <laughs> yes, yes. And then if I couldn't get someone to t- answer all my questions, what I would do then is I'd do WBAs because I found that if you do a focused WBA, like a case-based discussion or, you know, a mini CX or something, people really put time and effort into saying, well, I would do the case like this and why have you made that choice? Even simple things around like analgesia. And I found it a really good way for me to understand people's thoughts, you know, Mm. to be able to then, I guess, carry that knowledge with me as well. So as I said, I tried to sit the exam really early. So I was really trying as hard as I could um, to get all the information out really quickly. Mm. I, um, would even sometimes move around through lists. Say if I was on a boring obstetric list, but I knew they were doing double lumen tubes, I would ask if I could just duck down and watch them do that. Or I asked to get rostered to different things. So I actually um, was at Prince Charles and I ducked down to an MRI list the week before my anaesthetic viva. Never been to an MRI before. I've had a viva on it. Oh wow. oh, wow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'd never seen, yeah, but I'd never seen the ECGs, you know, and all the SATs and then the different machine. And, you know, I actually asked the um, radiographer about what their arrest protocol was. And yeah, yeah, it was really helpful. Nice. Well played. Yeah. Well played. It's, it's great. I really like that you're making sort of being at work and, you know, the training program and the WBA is working for you. Like it's not just about jumping through hoops for the people who employ you or who are training you. It's about taking that and making it work for you. I really like yeah. that. That's fantastic. And it, it's a bit of a flip of um, ideas because I think most people think you don't do WBAs when you're studying because, you know, mm. you're studying and so you're really distracted. But I find most people um, were much happier to answer all my silly questions if it was kind of formalised. All right. So, look, we've talked a lot about what was helpful. Is there anything you did that you didn't think was helpful? Well, I definitely have really bad FOMO. And I think um, especially (laughs) because I was, you know, really pushing myself with working pretty hard and trying to get through the exam, it meant that sometimes I went to some stuff like shoots or events or things that maybe weren't that helpful. But I guess I always had that fear that I'd kind of miss something (laughs) if I wasn't there. And I Mm. probably could have pulled back a bit. The other thing is medical vivas. I um, did a lot of practice of medical vivas with patients on the ward. And my experience of that was, say, the patient had a leg amputation, but I was there to assess the stability of their COPD. They were often very confused about why I was there. Mm. All they wanted to talk about was their leg. And I often found it was kind of this awkward, like trying to lean into the bed and assess them in non-ideal conditions about a condition they didn't really know that much about. So, I think if I had my time again, I would probably um, I sit, hit a sweet spot at the end where we'd I'd get together actually with trainees on the south side and we would each bring a script and then we would actually pretend to be a patient and just kind of talk through our assessment and do a history. And I think there was probably more value in that. But mm, 
Okay, cool. Yeah, I think with the modified um, format for medical vibes, I think people are probably doing less patient assessments anyway Mm. and COVID, obviously. Yeah. All righty, so let's talk tactics. Now, how did you study in the weeks leading up to the written exam? So did you do a taper or did you focus on past papers and practice exams? How exactly did you work it, shall we say? I actually had a look at my schedule just this week and realised I think I had about six weeks at the end. So I had quite a bit of time and I think it's a good idea to structure that in an actual revision time because, Mm. you know, especially if something happens and you miss a week or, you know, there's often stuff that comes up as well. I then basically worked from the last exam before me backwards. So trying to do each of the exams as SAQs and MCQs and from memory, I think I over I over um, predicted what I'd actually get mm-hmm. through because it's quite tedious sitting down and doing mm-hmm. those exams. Mm-hmm. I th- I think doing them for a shorter format's not a bad idea. So maybe doing five minute SAQs, and because it was so tedious, my study group would actually get together and do them under exam conditions, both SAQs and MCQs. So I mm-hmm. think that helped as well. But mm-hmm. and right before the written, you have to have a list of rote learning stuff that you just have to know. Um, and we did that again with whiteboards so we'd someone would have a turn kind of writing out you know the child's pew criteria you know all those sorts of different scoring things that you just have to know as well Mm. Mm, yeah Uh, so what about the day of the written exam do you remember what you did on the morning of the exam and in between the two papers I remember um, I remember the night before, I think my biggest fear at that point was that I wouldn't sleep um, mm. because of my children. So one of the other uh, people in my study group had a hotel and I know I stayed with her um, and I think that was a good tactic. And then I think we just had some breakfast actually before the exam. I don't think we did anything, you know, particularly specific, but I think just trying to remain calm and not get there's nothing like that stress of about to sit and Anne's co-written exam. I actually just talking about it makes me feel anxious, but I think just remain remaining calm. Mm, yeah, I like it. Now, what was your approach to practicing for the medical vibes? Yeah, so we talked a little bit about that and I think staying across um, the ANSCA website and what's happening with medical fibers will be really important. I think for these, you literally do have to go back to Tally and O'Connor. I think you're really getting back into that what are the cardiovascular system questions, so history, mm. and how do you actually perform a cardiovascular examination because my understanding from the medical vibe is there won't be patients, but you will be expected to actually talk about what the findings would be or how you would perform examinations. Then um, ANSCA actually have a list of the conditions they expect you to know. Um, it does look quite long, but when you actually run your eyes through it and, you know, you sort of condense them down, like say maybe the interstitial lung disease probably goes with, you know, it, it actually is just another name for a couple of the other conditions. It's actually mm. not too bad. So for mm. each of those, you need to know kind of the history, examination, investigations, and, and really about then is there any scoring system or any way to know kind of whether or not their disease is managed. And then at the end of all that, I guess, thinking about how you'd give that patient an anaesthetic. It's all about severity, stability and optimization. Mm. And that's actually really hard because I don't think we do a lot of that as anaesthetists in our general yeah. work. You know, we actually kind of rely really heavily on physicians for that. So, it, it is actually something that takes a bit of practice to think about what those words mean and how you would work that out for a patient. I think as we already talked about them, the thing that I would do differently would be trying to just work through scripts with friends and then bouncing mm. questions about patients off each other. 
but remembering that you have to cover the investigation. So there's really good online stuff for ECGs and chest X-rays and things like that and working through, I think, Life in the Fast Lane is really good for ECGs. Mm. And I actually Mm. think there's some radiology um, places. You can actually do little chest X-ray courses online as well. So did you give yourself a break between the written exam and then the anaesthetic vivas? Yeah, it was a little while ago now. I, I know I did, but I remember for the primary, it's like this thing you have to have a break, don't you? You have to take a break. Mm. Everyone tells you you have to. And <laughs> I think I remember for the primary taking a break but feeling really anxious about the break I was taking. So I think <laughs> I think for this one, I think I was okay with a bit of a break, but I think I kind of got on with it a bit quicker because I was like, you know, time's really precious and I um I knew that I wouldn't be able to kind of bust out any cramming. So mm, Yeah, enough. that's fair enough. So, look, we know that the practice anaesthetic vivas are important, but I'm curious about how you studied in between doing your practice vivas. I think people can get really caught up in doing gazillions and, you know, so many, so many vivas, and I think it's really about quality over quantity here. I still think back to some of the, especially the early ones I did, God, they were really terrible, really cringeworthy. <laughs> so you, I think you have to go through that, though, to realise that it, there is a little bit of a performance element in it. And so I think you do have mm. to do some. It doesn't have to be a million, but I think actually learning from them is really important. So um, mm. I had a way I would write them down and then I would go away and think about the things I didn't know or didn't do well and then think about how I would kind of restructure my answers, I guess, in a way um, mm. so that even if you're not doing many, I guess you're actually getting the most value from them. Um, from uh, study in between the actual vivas, so our study group, we would do a lot of um, cutting up the pages of anaesthetic vivas and having them kind of in a bowl and then you pull one out and then you just oh, get yeah. like, I don't know, 30 seconds or a minute to prepare and then you have to give your answer and you just go mm. round and round doing that. When you repeat That's that process, you actually realise that they're not asking that many different things. And I think for every anaesthetic viva, after learning heaps of mnemonics and all these different techniques and all these fancy things, by the time I got to the exam, I think I did patient pathology procedure for every single one of them. So, yeah, mostly that. I think mostly just practising that ability to talk in an mm. organised fashion and really think on your feet as well. Mm. All right. So did you have a moment when you knew that you had done enough practice anaesthetic vivas? I don't think you're ever really ready for an anaesthetic exam. I think the primary and the fellowship, but I do think you get to a point where I reckon you get angry, you know, when you're just like, oh, I hate, <laughs> I hate Anscare and I hate the world and I hate everyone. And I think anger is, I think it's good. I think it's a really good place when you're angry. And also when you just can't be bothered anymore. I think mm. when you're angry and you're at a point where you can't possibly do another viva, I think you're probably ready. But it's not an exam you ever go into feeling like you've done enough. Mm. Oh, 100%, 100%. So, look, what did your week leading up to the Viber exam look like? And is there anything special that you did to either prepare yourself or to keep yourself calm on the day of the exam? I remember the actual, between the written and the Viva exam, we had a lot of stuff happening. I think um, my dog actually ended up having a laparotomy for, um, he had a corn cob in his bowel. I know. Literally, I went to study group, study group, did my cardiac pre-med, took the dog for his laparotomy. I left a child on a couch vomiting into a bucket with my neighbour who had gastro. So I think... um, It was just more kind of distractions and other things happening, really, and just trying to crawl over the finish line. 
Leading up, it wasn't, I guess, the week before, but lots of practice fiver nights happened. And a lot of those in South East Queensland were word of mouth. So Sunny Coast, Gold Coast, PA, MARTA, Royal, Charlie's, ANSCA and mm. ASA often all have um, fiver nights. And I found actually going to different institutions and seeing the different kind of styles and the way people talked really helpful because I think if you do it in a really insular way, I think you can get a little bit institutionalised mm. in the way you think and the way you talk about things. Definitely. Um, but I think as well, I think the anxiety is really hard to control. I think anaesthetic exams are, are really, really difficult. Um, I found sleep really difficult. I did mm. sometimes have a sneaky wine at night while I was studying <laughs> and I had a theory that it would like relax somehow your brain cells and just help things get in. Yeah, totally. <laughs> There's, uh, not scientifically proven. Um, but I think I am... Um, <laughs> At, at one of the Viva nights, I spoke to an examiner, actually. She happened to be working in the hospital where this Viva night was. And and talking to her actually was one of the most, um, it was really helpful. So she talked about how nervous they were, the examiners, and how hard they studied to get there and how much time and thought went into every one of those questions because they wanted them to be fair and they actually genuinely wanted you to pass. Mm. So, mm. And she said, imagine you're calling up, uh, you know, your colleague or your friend or your boss to talk about a case and say, hey, there's a really difficult airway. I'm going into theatre 10. I'm thinking I'm going to do an awake fibro. You know, you're just talking to a colleague about it. And, and that really helped me as well. Mm. That's a great tip. I like it. So what can you tell us about the day of your anaesthetic vivas unless you've blocked it out because of some sort of PTSD situation? <laughs> Although, you know, you came out with a prize, so let's face it. Um, <laughs> yes, I'm going to start by saying I bought a fabulous outfit and I think that's really important. I had an examiner came up to me afterwards to talk about my fabulous outfit. Oh, that's awesome. Because <laughs> while... While you're reading the question, your back's faced them. And so she said definitely having something a bit zhuzhy on the mm. back is very important. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, so true. A lot of my friends had passed the day before, so I think it was kind of it was funny how it's divided up. And so I guess mm. I wasn't really sitting with a lot of my friends. It was held, my one was held in Brisbane that year in a big function room and um, they had these kind of rows um, set up with dividers, like you were kind of going into a little conference area, I guess. Um, there were four stations and there was a rest station. And so you started on one of those. You had the two minutes facing away from the examiner to read um, stems. And those stems were all available um, by ANSCA through the um, exam reports. And there was always a question at the bottom. So then you would turn, sit down, and then you would answer the initial question. And then that would kind of lead, I guess, into the next questions coming after that. The thing I found on the day was that the stems were really long. I don't know if that was my exam or it's a PTSD kind of thing. I don't know, <laughs> but it seems like it was a full A4 page of information for you to read, synthesize, and then actually come up with your answer. Mm -hmm. And as I said, I use patient pathology procedure for every single answer. I think maybe because of that, there was just so much to contend with that I don't think I could get fancy with kind of what I was then going to say. I thought some of some of the examiners looked a bit nervous, like they were trying to stick, look at me but stick to their script. And so I think that helped because I think I felt like maybe we were we were both kind of struggling in the moment as well. I remember the anaesthetic fibers though. It, yeah, it wasn't anything fancy. And my biggest tip with anaesthetic fibers is to really avoid all of the fancy stuff people tell you have to say. So all of the I will simultaneously assess and treat and I will <laughs> like like I wouldn't call up 
like I wouldn't call you up, Kate, and say, hey, can you come give me a hand with this difficult case? I'm going to simultaneously assess and you know, <laughs> like, like people don't talk like that. And so I think the more authentic you can be in yourself at the time, I think the better. And I think they genuinely are looking for that. They are genuinely looking for you to just say, look, I'm really worried about this case. You know, this is really difficult and therefore I'm going to call a second set of hands. Mm. You know, they're not looking for you to kind of, you know, create something really fancy in that. Each fiver I remember definitely had some kind of small crisis at least um, and definitely a safety check where they're like the patient's fully anticoagulated and has severe pulmonary hypertension. Do you want to do a spinal? You know, they always had a little <laughs> like, uh, you know, and when they do that, they give you, it's almost like they wink because there was always a moment where if you don't, you know, jump over this hurdle, then mm. I think it's all over. Mm. Yeah, fair enough. So, look, looking back on everything that you did, do you think there's anything that you would change if you could do it all over again? Um, my husband always jokes that I overstudied for the exam and I guess in some ways he's right. Um, but <laughs> you don't really, you know, like I, I always say you just don't really know like what that level is and, you know, how much you do need to study. I think if you didn't have to sit it as early as I did, I don't think you would. Like I think if I didn't have all the other kind of social pressures and family things happening, as you've already picked up probably, I spent a lot of time working really hard at work. You know, mm. I got rostered to go and do one craniotomy. I was, you know, trying to watch double lumen tubes going in. I think if you could do that in a relaxed fashion and just actually get the experience before you sit, it probably makes sense. Mm. I, the thing I didn't do that I regretted was start a rote learning list. So have a list of the actual, you know, the child pew and all the things that you want to know at the end. Start that from the first day you study because I used someone else's mm. list, which was okay but not amazing. Mm. And we already talked about the medical viva. I think, you know, they were kind of my effort reward wasn't really on um, the peak of the curve there. So I think I'd probably just do that a little bit differently if I did that again. That's Fair cool. enough. I don't know really how much more you could optimise really given the outcome, but uh, it's good to reflect, <laughs> isn't it? We can always improve. So, Anything else that you would uh, think would help the trainees who are preparing to sit the exam? Yeah, I think as I already spoke about, I think you've got to know the enemy. So before you go and start reading BJA articles, go to the ANSCA website, read about the exam, read about how many questions there are and how many minutes, read about the structure of the day, you know, how it's all going to happen and especially go and reread the Medical Viva site, which has been updated and it actually, ANSCA has all sorts of things like videos, they have an updated video of the Medical Viva and they have videos of anaesthetic vivas. So go and do awesome. all of that first. Yeah, and actually know what you're studying for. Because mm. I genuinely, I'm maybe still a bit confused about what a medical viva is, but I reckon that took me a good six months being like, but there's mm. no airway assessment. There's no mm. airway assessment, guys. Hot tip. Mm. Um, mm. Go and read a couple of past papers and read the examiner comments and read through the anaesthetic vivas and see what's there. Have a look at some past MCQs and as we already talked about, go and talk to three people who just sat, you know, and go and actually talk to them about what references they used and how they actually structured things. Mm. And always know that if ANSCA have said it, it is the truth. So if there's a mm. blue book, if there's a pain book, if there's anything mm. that has the word ANSCA semi-attached to it, then that is absolutely where you need to go. So, for example, the timing of anticoagulant stopping doesn't come from ASRA. It doesn't come from all those places. It's in the ANSCA pain book. So that's mm. where the MCQs come from. Mm. Mm. And I guess ultimately I always say to people, you know, if you were training for a marathon, you know, you're going to run it, you train for that marathon, right? So don't go, um, you know, swimming for your marathon. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. 
Look, that's fantastic. Thank you so much, Anna. Now, before we sign off, we have one last question for you. What did you learn this week in anesthesia? I, um, uh, this isn't really clinical, but I did the part two teaching last week and we talked about cardiac risk in non-cardiac surgery. Awesome topic. Um, <laughs> and we were talking about the Lee's Revised Cardiac Risk Index and I got schooled by my part two candidates. Apparently there's some new data around exactly what the percentage risks are that I didn't know about. So there you go. That's awesome. Um, That's so yeah. cool. <laughs> Why not? Yeah, well, you know, cool in a super nerdy sort of way. Um, but it did remind <laughs> me about why I do part two teaching because um, mm. there's always something new to learn. It's very oh, true. <laughs> so we just wanted to say a massive thank you for your time and insight into your exo- own exam experience. I'm sure there are lots of people out there that are navigating their own exam prep and are finding everything you've discussed today incredibly helpful. So thank you. Thanks for having me. I guess the last thing I wanted to say is just to never forget that this is just an exam. When you're sitting it, I think it can feel like it really is mm. the world, you know, your your, your own stress your family stress, your partner stress, you know, you've got the whole department that you work in kind of, you know, you're worried about what they're going to think of you. And I think um, ultimately you have to remember that sometimes things don't go to plan. Sometimes you may not pass the exam. And this exam doesn't define you as a person, you know, it's just one more thing. And we all know people, you know, some idol in anaesthetics who who failed this exam. So amazing people can fail this exam. So always keep it in perspective. Mm. That's fantastic Mm, advice. Very wise. Now, before we sign out, we have some exciting news for those consultants and fellows listening to us. You can claim CPD for each podcast that you listen to. Just log us as a learning session within the Knowledge and Skills Division. And as evidence, take a screenshot of the podcast episode. Yeah, it's fantastic news. And uh, that's, of course, at the rate of one credit per hour. So um, go ahead and log CPD. Exciting. Absolutely. Well, it's been a thought-provoking talk this week on Deep Breaths. As always, you can reach us at deepbreathspod at gmail.com. We love hearing all of your suggestions for future topics and possible guests to approach, so please keep the emails coming. You can find us on most major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and following us makes it easier to find new episodes. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening and we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths.